Amen. Our gospel lesson continues this morning in... Hang on. Uh, in Matthew, because uh, Matthew is the year, year A in the lectionary, and we're making our way slowly through it, if you've noticed. And we've made it all the way to chapter 16. Jesus is teaching and letting the disciples know that they're going to be on their own. And he's trying to infuse them with everything they need to know after he's gone and in heaven. Listen. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever... You loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Location, location, location. When a text opens with a very specific location, Caesarea Philippi in this case, we can be sure that what follows is important. The more information in the introduction, the more alert we shall be for something important to happen. And indeed it does. Caesarea Philippi was a Greco-Roman city located near the city of Dan in the northern part of Israel by Mount Hermon and the Jordan River. As you follow the Benaiah stream to the cliff area, according to Wikipedia, You can tell immediately that you are in a very unique place. There's a rocky face that rises 100 feet above you and 500 feet wide, centered by a foreboding cave with temple ruins strewn about. It was here that Herod the Great built the Temple of Augustus in 19 before the Common Era to honor his Caesar. The temple sat in front of the cave that was believed to be the gateway to the underworld and where the Greek god Pan lived. And I can tell you nothing good happened there. Mark Twain visited in 1867. He described Caesarea Philippi like this. Scattered everywhere in the paths and in the woods are Corinthian capitals broken pillars, and little fragments of sculpture. And up yonder in the precipice, where the fountain gushes out, 
are well-worn Greek inscriptions over niches in the rock where in ancient times the Greeks and after them the Romans worshipped the sylvan god Pan, end quote. The ancients believed that water symbolized the abyss and death. So the spring that flowed out of the gate of Hades made Jesus' promise about his church's supremacy all the more poignant. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. How perfect that one of the most sinful places in Israel was where he revealed himself to be the true God of Israel. Right there in the muck and the slime, the gates of Hades will not prevail. Here in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked, who do people say the Son of Man is? Do you think he was just curious? The disciples answer, some say John the Baptist and some Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But then Jesus draws in closer. But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus responds, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever is loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. A story from real life. My very own experience in ordination. I was ordained on December 4th, 2005. Hardly believe it. And the next day I started work at First Presbyterian of Bridgeport as their stated supply pastor. Because as you know, in our system, you have to have somewhere to work, a call, in this case, a de designation to work somewhere so that we don't have a bunch of Presbyterians floating around who are ready for ordination, have been ordained, but have nowhere to hang their proverbial hat. So I went to work the very next day on a Monday of all things. I learned later that's not a good idea. But I went to work on the Monday, and Brother Wayne, I call him, he was our clerk of session, for about 100 years, he was clerk. And he was just the perfect match for me being so new and so green. He walked me through, we went and we found the pastor's study. There was that nice chair for the pastor to sit in. So I did. And he said, Lucia, here's the key. I said, oh, Wayne, take my picture. He said, Lucia, I've given you a key to the church, not the keys to the kingdom. I've never forgotten that. 
there is more than one way to teach humility. Since the fourth century, theologians have argued about the practical meaning of verse 18, a very short verse. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Could one verse cause as much consternation as it has? Yes. You see, Roman Catholics believe that this was the beginning of apostolic succession, which is a big tenet in their faith. That Peter, in fact, was the first bishop, and he led to a line of more bishops and popes. Now, Protestants, on the other hand, emphasized that it was Peter's faith in Christ that became the foundation of the church. It was his faith, not Peter as much. However, the statement is interpreted, we can agree that it is an image of the continuity of God's people over time. Not beginning with Christ's birth, but beginning with God's breathing life into the creature. Jesus names Peter the rock, and all who follow are living stones. Together we build the body of Christ. 1 Peter 2.5 says, like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house. I love that. That we are a spiritual house for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not the chapel, not the building, not the sanctuary, but you and me. If you want to read more about living stones, look further into 1 Peter. As Dorothy often reminds us, the church is the people. Without the people, the church, no matter how lovely and beautiful and serene and historical, is still just an empty space. And as I like to say, the church is not a club. Church is more than a group of like-minded individuals and more than a mission center. Church, in fact, is an article of faith. That founding day in Caesarea Philippi, the least likely place that Jesus would say what he did to Peter. The church is an article of faith. Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church, and then the best part for me, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. No coronavirus, no economic crash. No isolation will prevail, will overtake, will trump the church. I was so happy to be reminded of that this week. Having gone to Catholic high school, emphasis was, of course, on the Peter, on Peter as the first bishop part. That's what's important to Catholics. One thing, but we mustn't miss the next part of the verse. That's how scripture is. It's full of these nuggets 
that change life. Jesus promises to build the church and promises that no death, no hell, no destruction will prevail against it. The church will resolutely stand. It might look differently. We've already seen that. Churches meet in pubs. Churches meet in homes. Churches meet on Zoom. Talk about radical change. But guess what? We are still the church. Christians all over the world are still the church. I'll never forget the footage when Haiti had the earthquake and all the problems. Philip was there serving. And I'll never forget seeing it on TV and those people just prayed, didn't they? Do you remember seeing that where they would just huddled together. They had no homes. The thing was flattened. And they would just pray and sing and worship under their little makeshift tents. The church will stand and nothing will prevail against it. Yesterday I read a point of inspiration by Max Lucado, whom I love, He said, do what you do for God. Make sure that your motivation for service is to glorify God. And that's what the church is for. I like that. It gives a heavenly tone to what we do as Christians. And we could use more heavenly tones like we hear when Dr. Brad plays. Jesus names Peter the rock. In fact, it's a play on words. The word Peter means the rock. Was he, in fact, the least likely to be that guy? Absolutely. Peter didn't have the greatest track record. You know, he missed many of Jesus' salient points. His mouth often moved before his brain which we might be able to relate to. And just a few verses after this passage, passage, Jesus calls Peter Satan. Jesus calls Peter Satan for setting his mind on human things instead of divine things, which again reminds me of turn your eyes upon Jesus. And as if that weren't enough, Pretty soon, Peter denies Jesus three times in the Garden of Gethsemane at that critical, cross-filled moment. So why would Jesus appoint this rock guy? For one good reason. Jesus didn't, never has, never will call disciples on the basis of rightness, or righteousness. It wasn't Peter's attributes that made him the rock. It was his testimony, his recognition of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Messiah, and his willingness to say yes, to accept Christ's authority, 
That's what it means when it says what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Giving us, Peter, the disciples, us, the authority of Jesus Christ. That was big in Caesarea Philippi. Jesus Christ is the head of the church, not Peter, not Mary, not James, not John, not Luther, not Calvin, not Wesley, or anyone else. The church is founded on testimony that follows Christ into the world. One of the first questions a seminary will ask is, what do you believe about authority? That's how important authority is, that we know what we're signing up for. Each of us, the priesthood of all believers, has authority given by the Savior. Jesus wants to know that Peter gets the authority piece, that he latches on to that. He says, I have authority. Do you accept it? Will you follow where I lead? The same question is proposed to us. Jesus leans in and asks, who do you say that I am? A good teacher? A magician? Or the living son of God? When we pray, do we get right into our wants and needs? Or do we first acknowledge the God to whom we pray like this? Gracious God, almighty God, living God, redeemer God, creator God, awesome, amazing God. Let's enter prayer that way. I love any version of the great prayer of thanksgiving, which we use during communion. Each one has a beautiful entry. It doesn't matter where you look. Each great prayer of thanksgiving has a beautiful entry like this one. Eternal God, we do indeed praise you. For out of your thought, you spoke the world into spinning beauty. After scooping together a little earth, you animated humans with your heart's breath. Your glory shines forth, and out of the soil comes abundant harvest. Wheat whirling in wind's delight, grapes clinging to the vine. You rain down your compassion and feed us with mercy. On this rock I will build my church, and nothing will prevail against it, said Jesus. The church is built on the Peters and the Petras of the world. Not only then in the fourth century, but ever since. Peter the Rock is able to testify that Jesus is the Messiah. He recognizes the Christ. Not because he studied hard and took the star exam on time but rather because God gave him the gift of knowing. Being open to the gifts of the Holy Spirit leads to God teaching us what we need to know. 
It's really that clear. We open our hearts and God teaches us what we need to know. As Jill Duffield, editor of Outlook Magazine writes, when our relationship to God is clear, our other priorities are rightly centered. Let's be one church for God's sake and the world's. Amen. Please stand or remain seated as together we say what we believe using the affirmation of faith from the Confession of 1967. The life, death, resurrection, and promised coming of Jesus Christ has set the pattern for the church's mission. His life as human involves the church in the common life of all. His service commits the church to work for every form of human well-being. His suffering makes the church sensitive to all the sufferings of humanity so that it sees the face of Christ in the faces of those in every kind of need. His crucifixion discloses to the church God's judgment on our inhumanity to others and the awful consequences of its own complicity in injustice. In the power of the risen Christ and the hope of his coming, the church sees the promise of God's renewal of life in society and of God's victory over all wrong. The church follows this pattern in the form of its life and in the method of its action. So to live and serve is to confess Christ as Lord. And let us sing one of my favorites, number 636. Let all the world in every corner sing. Mm -hmm. 